Chapter 39 of Paul, a Herald of the Cross. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Paul, a Herald of the Cross, by Florence M. Kingsley. Chapter 39. Caesarem Apello. Jerusalem was in a ferment of excitement. People of every nationality, clad in every variety of holiday garb, jostled one another in the narrow streets or overflowed the marketplaces. The temple courts were crowded. All day long countless sacrifices smoked upon its altars. In the wider streets and squares and from the battlemented walls resounded the continuous blare of trumpets, the clash of arms, and the low thunder of marching cohorts. Everywhere glittered the Roman eagle, hated symbol of Gentile supremacy and national degradation. Portius Festus, the new procurator of Judea, had arrived, and Jerusalem bade him welcome. While his excellency was busily occupied in reviewing the troops and inspecting the walls and fortifications of the city, the Sanhedrin held an important session. As the ecclesiastical heads of the nation, it devolved upon them to formally recognize the newly arrived official. There were also certain matters to be laid before him the settlement of which had already been too long delayed during the lax and disgraceful rule of Felix. A deputation was chosen to wait upon the procurator, of which the high priest Ishmael ben Fabi, recently appointed by Agrippa II, was the natural head. At a set time these dignitaries presented themselves with great pomp and state in the audience chambers of the Asmonean palace. The tedious formalities suitable to the occasion having been duly observed, the spokesman of the deputation proceeded to make known, among other matters, one of the principal objects of the interview. "'There is a certain man named Paul, who has been under bonds in Caesarea for two years past,' began this person, who was no other than the ex-high priest Ananias. "'He is a mischievous person, most excellent Festus, and a transgressor of the law of Moses. He was arrested by us in an attempt to profane our holy temple, an offense which thou knowest to be punishable with death. Moreover, he has been guilty of numerous and heinous offenses against the Roman government, having in times past stirred up insurrections against Caesar in many provinces, as also here in this holy city.' We therefore unite in requesting that thou wilt cause this man to be fetched at once to Jerusalem, and that thou wilt deliver him into our hands, that we may deal with him after our law. Portius Festus listened to this bold request with astonishment, not unmingled with displeasure. It is not the custom of Rome, he said haughtily, to deliver any man to death by way of doing a favor, but to place accused and accusers face to face, giving the accused a full opportunity for his defense. This prisoner of whom you speak shall remain in Caesarea, whither I myself propose shortly to return. Let those of you, therefore, who are able to do so, return with me, and prefer the charges against him there." The Sanhedrists withdrew from the presence of Festus, full of rage and disappointment. They had made so sure of their request that they had already hired assassins to make way with their hated enemy on the road between Caesarea and Jerusalem. It was evident that this new procurator could not easily be intimidated, but they nevertheless resorted to their old plan of stirring up the people. During the few days that Festus remained in Jerusalem, crowds of turbulent Jews surrounded his palace night and day loudly demanding the death of Paul. And when he returned to the political capital, a noisy multitude of Caesarean Jews greeted him with the cry, Away with Paul! Away with him! Away with such a fellow from the earth! 
Festus needed no further urging to prompt action in the matter. On the very next day after his arrival in Caesarea, he commanded that the hearing should take place. The Sanhedrists were present in full force. On this occasion they had hired no lawyer to present their case, but preferred their accusations themselves with all the vehemence and fury of rancorous hatred. As at his first trial, the prisoner steadily asserted his innocence of every charge. Neither against the law of the Jews, he declared, nor against the temple, nor against Caesar have I offended in any way whatsoever. Scarcely these words were out of his mouth when the Jews cried out the more fiercely, demanding his death. Festus surveyed the scene with manifest displeasure. To the dignified, just, order-loving Roman, these bearded and turbaned rabbis with their fierce dark faces and strident voices afforded a strange and odious spectacle. At the same time he knew full well that it was necessary for him to ingratiate himself with them, since otherwise he could hope for nothing save a speedy and disgraceful recall to Rome. He saw as plainly that the case in hand had nothing to do with Roman law, that it was simply a matter of tedious and incomprehensible religious fanaticism, concerning which it would be impossible for him to judge. He turned to the prisoner whose calm, dignified demeanor in the face of his furious enemies had impressed him most favorably. "'Wilt thou go up to Jerusalem,' he said, "'and there be judged of these matters under my protection?' The prisoner straightened his bowed shoulders and worn and pallid face glowing with indignation. I stand at Caesar's judgment seat, he said boldly, and there ought my trial to be. To the Jews I have done no wrong, as thou knowest full well. If I am guilty of anything which is worthy of death, I refuse not to die. But if the things whereof these men accuse me are false, no man can give me up to them. I appeal unto Caesar. For an instant there was silence in the judgment hall. The two words, Caesarum Apello, had changed the whole aspect of affairs. The Jews glared at their intended victim in transports of unavailing rage. Those words of power had raised in an instant between the man and their fury the impassable barrier of Roman law. Portius Festus was also displeased by the appeal. To be thus reminded in the very beginning of his procuratorship that he was but an underling of the emperor was, he thought, a bad omen for his future success. Besides, he had meant well and fairly by the man. To appeal to Caesar was not only unnecessary on the part of the prisoner, but considering the complexion of affairs at Rome, it would assuredly prove disastrous to his interests. Festus, however, had now no choice in the matter. All future jurisdiction in the case was out of his power. It only remained for him to decide whether or not the appeal was admissible. On this point it was evident that there could be no doubt, since the accused was neither a pirate nor a bandit. He turned to the prisoner after the brief formalities relating to the admission of the appeal had been finished, and pronounced the solemn words, Caesarum Apalesti, ad Caesarum Ibus. Two days later, Agrippa II, the last of the Herods, came with his sister Bernice to proffer their congratulations to the newly installed procurator. It afforded these pseudo-royalties a fine opportunity of flaunting their phantom magnificence, and at the same time enabled them to bespeak the goodwill of their powerful neighbor. Agrippa had been trained from youth in all the minutiae of Jewish law and theology. He was legal custodian of the sacred robes and guardian of the temple, with the power to make and unmake high priests at his royal pleasure. 
Festus was therefore especially glad to see him at this time. It gave him an opportunity of consulting a wise authority concerning the strange prisoner whom he was about to dispatch to Rome. The law required that a full statement of the alleged offenses must be sent with the prisoner by the provincial official, and Festus could make nothing of the extravagant statements of the rabbis. There is a certain man left here in bonds by Felix, he said, drawing his heavy brows together, concerning whom when I was at Jerusalem the chief men of the nation informed me. They also demanded judgment against him. Romans deliver no man to the death, I answered them, until he has had opportunity to defend himself face to face with his accusers. They came therefore to Caesarea, and I called the case without delay. But the accusations proved to be nothing but certain questions having to do with their own superstitions, and of one Jesus, a man who died long since, but whom Paul the prisoner declares to be alive. Because I knew nothing of such matters, I asked the man whether he would go to Jerusalem for trial, whereupon he appealed unto the emperor, and I remanded him to the prison till such a time as could conveniently send him to Rome. I would also hear the man myself, said Agrippa. Thou shalt hear him to-morrow, declared Festus, readily, seeing in this request a way out of his own perplexities. Accordingly, on the day following, the proconsular court, the chief officers of the army, and all the principal men of the city were invited to be present in the council chamber of the palace. Festus appeared in the full splendor of his scarlet pollutement, attended by his lictors and armed bodyguard. On either side of his seat of state was placed a gilded chair for the chief guests of the occasion, to gratify whose pardonable curiosity this imposing function had been held. They entered presently in magnificent state, followed by an imposing retinue of attendants, the young Agrippa wearing the glittered crown and purple robes of royalty, and Berenice regally beautiful in the trailing amplitude of her queenly garb. At a given signal, the door at the lower end of the hall was thrown open, and the prisoner, chained to a soldier, and further guarded by a quaternion, advanced into the open space reserved in front of the dais. Every eye was at once eagerly fastened upon him. Many had never seen the famous captive. Could it be possible that this worn, feeble old man was the hated apostate, the dangerous fanatic, the inciter of tumult and riots, of whom they'd heard so much? He seemed unembarrassed and unafraid in the face of all that brilliant assembly. His face shone with a singular joy, as if his thoughts afforded him secret satisfaction. "'King Agrippa, and all who are here present,' began Festivus with a stately formality, "'ye behold this man about whom all the multitude of Jews have dealt with me, both at Jerusalem and also here in Caesarea, crying out that he ought not to live any longer.' when I found that he had done nothing worthy of death, and since he appealed to Caesar, I determined to send him to Rome. But having no clear statement regarding the man to make to my lord the emperor, I have brought him forth before you, and especially before thee, O King Agrippa, that when thou hast examined him, I may have somewhat to write, for it seemeth to me unreasonable to send a prisoner to Rome without signifying the crimes alleged against him." Having thus introduced the prisoner, Festus, with an easy wave of the hand, signified that the man was now at the disposal of his royal guest. Agrippa accordingly addressed the apostle with haughty condescension. "'Thou art permitted,' he said, "'to speak for thyself.' "'I think myself happy, King Agrippa,' began Paul, stretching forth his manacled right hand in his own familiar way that I shall defend myself today before thee against all the charges of my Jewish accusers. 
especially because thou art expert in all Jewish customs and questions. Wherefore I pray thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from early youth, which was passed among my own nation at Jerusalem, is known to all the Jews. They know me from the first, and could testify, if they would, that according to the strictest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee. And now I stand here to be judged for the hope of the promise made by God unto our fathers, which promise is the end whereto, in all their zealous worship, night and day, our twelve tribes hope to come. Yet this hope, O King Agrippa, is charged against me as a crime, and that by the Jews. What? Is it judged among you a thing incredible that God should raise the dead? Now I myself determined in my own mind that I ought strenuously to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And this I did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints I shut up in prison, having received from the chief priests authority to do so. And when they were condemned to death, I gave my vote against them. In every synagogue I continually punished them, and endeavored to compel them to blaspheme. And being exceedingly mad against them, I pursued them with persecutions even unto foreign cities. With this purpose I was on my way to Damascus, bearing my authority and commission from the chief priests, when I saw in the way, O king, at midday, a light from heaven above the brightest of the sun, shining round about me, and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking to me, and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the goad. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And the Lord said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise, and stand upon thy feet. For to this end I have appeared unto thee, to ordain thee a minister and a witness, both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things wherein I will appear unto thee. And thee have I chosen from the house of Israel, and from among the Gentiles, unto whom I now send thee, to open their eyes, that they may turn from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among the sanctified by faith in me. Wherefore, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to the heavenly vision, but first to those at Damascus and Jerusalem and throughout all the land of Judea, and also to the Gentiles, I proclaimed the tidings that they should repent and return to God and do works worthy of their repentance. For these causes the Jews, when they caught me in the temple, endeavored to kill me, Having therefore obtained help of God, I stand firm unto this day, and bear my testimony both to small and great, but I declare nothing else than what the prophets and Moses foretold, that the Messiah should suffer, and that he should be the first to rise from the dead, and should be the messenger of light to the house of Israel, and also to the Gentiles. At this allusion to the resurrection for dead, which sounded like the wildest folly in the ears of the worldly Roman, Festus cried out loudly, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. I am not mad, most noble Festus, answered the prisoner steadily, but I speak forth the words of truth and soberness, for the king hath knowledge of these matters, and moreover I speak before him with boldness, since I am persuaded that nothing of all this is unknown to him, for this is not done in a corner, King Agrippa. Believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. The Jewish prince stirred uneasily in his chair. The light of those compelling eyes was fixed full upon him. He attempted to put down the look with the customary haughty stare, but his own eyes fell. He shrugged his shoulders with feigned indifference, exclaiming with a derisive smile, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. 
I would to God, answered Paul with a pathetic movement of his chained right hand, that not only thou, but also all that hear me this day, were both almost and altogether such as I am, except for these bonds. The hearing was at an end. The governor, observing the embarrassment of Agrippa, had signaled to the centurion to remove the prisoner. Then rising, he swept from the judgment hall with his guests, followed by all the brilliant throng of soldiers, courtiers, and lackeys. There was much gay laughter and light jesting among the ladies of Berenice as they passed into the more cheerful apartments of the palace. The princess herself shrugged her fair shoulders with a frown. "'That dreadful old man has quite given me the shivers,' she said petulantly. "'It was certainly most insolent of him to address his royal highness Agrippa in the bold manner that he did.' as his excellency the governor remarked the man is doubtless mad but it seemeth to me it can hardly be a madness induced by overmuch learning tis more likely that the prison walls have engendered strange and foolish fancies within his brain how horrible to be chained to an odious soldier all the time with that this amiable and virtuous princess dismissed the subject from her mind there were so many other more interesting and important questions relating to her jewels her robes her lovers her intrigues and the care of her exquisite body that indeed she could scarcely be expected to bestow very much of her royal attention upon a chained shabby mad old fanatic festus and agrippa conversed of the matter more seriously the man has done nothing worthy of death or bonds said the procurator decidedly agrippa agreed to this the fellow might have been set at liberty he added with suppressed yawn if he had not appealed to caesar End of chapter thirty nine